Hello, and welcome to the Medical Device Success Podcast. I am Ted Newell, your host. The goal of this podcast is to contribute to your success and, in turn, help you contribute to the success of your medtech company. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. This is a crazy time to start a podcast with the coronavirus dominating the news. However, there are important things we medical device professionals can be doing in this altered landscape of strategies and tactics for marketing, sales, and operations. So, working in the era of the coronavirus, hopefully a short era, will be the subject of this first season of episodes. Let's get started. Today we are talking about international marketing in the COVID-19 era. There is a good chance you are either a manufacturer that exports product to international markets or a distributor that is representing a manufacturer. My experience is that small and medium-sized U.S. companies tend to treat their international markets as a low priority. Non-U.S. manufacturers are much more sensitive to their international distribution networks. During this challenging period, it is very important to be communicating with your international channels. It's not hard nor expensive. To discuss this in more detail, we are fortunate to have Chris Morell with us today. Chris is the co-founder of MedUranet, a medtech consultancy with offices in London, Strasbourg, and Florida that can help companies succeed anywhere along the medtech roadmap from innovation to commercialization. So Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ted. And, you know, why don't you tell me a little bit more about um, MedUranet, what MedUranet does? Oh, so MedUranet is a polyvalent, as we say in French, a, a multifaceted consulting firm. Um, we specialize in helping medical device startup companies bring their products to Europe. And that takes a, a couple of different forms. Uh, we work in clinical studies, regulatory services, medical communications and marketing, and then market access, market research, and market assessment. And, and those aspects also involve health economics and reimbursement. So the idea behind MedUranet is that we provide the services that most companies need uh, in the immediate startup period right after they've finalized the product and they're getting ready to, to enter into a new market. And you're pan-European. We are pan-European. We are based in Strasbourg, France, and have a team that is quite European in makeup from French to Slovakian to uh, Czech and British and then some Americans like myself. And we cover primarily Western Europe, but we do work into the Central and Eastern European areas as well. For the audience, I just want you to know that I've known Chris for years now. Um, we both have worked a lot in the ophthalmic industry, but MedUranet does serve other industries besides ophthalmology. And it is a unique company. You don't find many companies like MedUranet. And Chris has is in a unique position, and her colleagues, they all of them are in a unique position to look at Europe a, a different way, and that's why I say pan-European, because you, it's Europe, but you have all these different countries 
some of which still have their own regulations, even though there is an MDR sort of overall regulation um, for Europe. And they have their own market nuances in terms of culture and distribution and so on and so forth. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, that's, I think, one of the most interesting aspects about working in Europe, especially as an American coming over here some 20 years ago and working for one of the major eye care companies at the time. And we'd have these team Europe meetings and as part of the European team, you know, meeting with the countries. And um, as soon as the team European team walked out of the room, the countries would look at each other and go, well, that doesn't apply to us. You learn very quickly that um, every country does have a nuance. Every country thinks of itself as, as, you know, as its own entity in addition to being part of Europe. And so you really have to adjust and conform your expectations about that perception of, of the country as a, an individual state, not a United States of Europe. Okay, so why don't we talk about the situation in Europe in this COVID-19 era. How would you describe it? I would describe it as um, worried, especially from, from, the, from the perception of, you know, working in the medical industry now. And you, and you know people, you know doctors who are on the front lines. And, you know, so you know that the stress that they're under um, also, from the, just the standpoint of the burden on the healthcare systems, in, in Europe, we're pretty lucky because we have universal healthcare, you know, we have extensive hospitals with inpatient beds. It's, it's very different from the U.S. in that respect, so it's very still much focused on inpatient care here. Um, so, as a rule, the beds are there, but this is an extraordinary time and an extraordinary demand and so you know that the, the system is strained and, and that you know, is a worry. You're also, of course, worried about your friends, your family, um, who could potentially be impacted by COVID-19. And, and so there's a lot of things that are swirling around you know, that, that impact kind of the, the day-to-day life. And it is, a, it is in a unique time frame. And then as an American, I'm, you know, I'm watching the, the, the diagnose rate in the US go up as well. And I think a lot of Europeans have sent messages to the U.S. and Canada saying, pay attention to how we're handling this and what it's like, um, because it, it's definitely not just the flu. Right, right. And do you see any differences between major markets? Like, um, is there any major difference between the way Germany's handling it or France or the U.K.? Well, Germany, everybody's looking at Germany, everybody's been looking at Germany because their death rate is extremely low compared to especially Spain and Italy. Um, Italy has the second oldest population in Europe and they have um, the Italians, uh, Italian young people tend to live at home until they get married. So you have a lot of intergenerational families. And we know from, from COVID-19 that it, it tends to infect younger people but not have an impact on them much more uh, dramatic in older populations. So, and Spain, similarly, older population. France, our level of, of infected patients seems low comparatively, but the French government has taken a different testing approach. 
Um, so we know that the, the health minister says, you know, for every, every person that's diagnosed in France, you can add five to 10 people behind that. So we know that the number in France is, is underreported. Germany, the, they've tested everybody and the testing that has paid off except it was a very young population. They tend to be mobile. Germany did not lock down, um, and parts of Germany still haven't fully locked down. So now it has, just in the past few days, spread into hospitals and nursing homes. And so we'll start to see the death rate go up in Germany. And so that's, that's going to be interesting to see how that government reacts because they've really uh, steadfastly refuse to put down, put in place the type of lockdown like we're here in France and have been. This is we're going into our third week now. UK they took a pro, uh, the approach of what they called herd herd immunity. So they the government there said, okay, we're going to roll the dice. We're going to l let this go through the population. A certain percentage are going to get sick. They're going to potentially die, but if the virus comes back, we will have immunity. Uh, interestingly, Imperial College in London ran a, a scenario, and this, this changed both how the UK was handling as well as the US. They estimated that if, if it was just allowed, COVID-19 was just allowed to run unchecked through the UK, they would lose somewhere uh, upwards of 20 million people. Wow. Um, and so that woke up the government there and they, within, I think, probably five days, they completely changed their position and went into a lockdown, which is fairly restrictive, but not as restrictive here in France, where there are fines and prison sentences if you don't obey the restrictions. So it, as a rule, there's sort of a formula that all the countries are following. Uh, what's What's been interesting is how quickly countries have implemented it versus have not. What's underreported is, is Netherlands, Switzerland, Belgium all have for their population size very high rates. So they're also dealing with with you know COVID-19 and, and probably it's it's much more it's much more of an impact for a smaller country because they don't have the resources that a big country like Germany, France have. Okay. And in the United States of course we have a lot of offices, uh, doctor's offices, um, on reduced hours and or closed, like dentists are closed except for emergencies. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, that makes sense because they're so close to somebody's face, um, despite the fact they might be wearing a mask. But even other, even primary care practices, um, ophthalmology offices, optometry offices, many of them are closed or on only emergency um, appointments or on reduced hours. What's it like um, in Europe in terms of you know access to doctors, clinics being open, closed, or for whatever purpose? For the most part, business as usual is, is, is over with. Elective surgery, such as cataract surgery, other elective procedures, have um, the governments have either issued orders or the societies have issued orders telling doctors to stop performing elective procedures. Um, but because of the, the sheer volume of COVID-19 patients, most scheduled surgery has been stopped. And I know firsthand, you know, one, of our, one of our team actually, her father was due to have life-saving cardiac surgery 
a few weeks ago, and that's been postponed. Wow. So the hospitals simply are not doing the standard procedures that were scheduled for, for cancer, for heart problems. Um, and that, that, should, that should worry people. And, and the WHO um, came out, I saw it yesterday, that they, they were urging healthcare systems to continue to handle the, the standard care that they should provide. But at, at the end of the day, they don't have the capacity. So it, it's just the emergent, the urgent care that has to be done because they, they just don't have the bandwidth. And here in Stralsburg, for example, at the at the university hospital, the main hospital in Stralsburg, um, at one point more than 240 of the physicians on staff were infected, and there was a, this raised eyebrows about them continuing to work. But if they had gone out, how would those patients have been cared for? Mm. Wow! So yeah. it is. It's it's just a, and it's just, but it just shows you how horribly vicious this virus is about infection and how easily it's transferred. And I know that you're in touch with a lot of uh, key opinion leaders and maybe everybody has been too busy to be communicating a whole lot, but are you hearing anything interesting from the key opinion leaders you typically work with? Well, it's super interesting because basically you can sort of divide it between private practice and public university hospital situations. The doctors who I know who are working in public institutions, in some cases, they've already been pulled in, such as in Italy. Um, in Germany, I know um, I'm in touch with a, a couple of the universities where we, we primarily perform our first in human clinical studies, and they're on standby. And they've been told that if it gets really bad, they're going to be pulled into handling general care. Um, one of the universities in, in Heidelberg, um, they've had some of the patients from Strasbourg transferred there. And so I'm aware of the condition that those patients are in because one of the professors keeps me posted. It's So in the Netherlands, I know that the entire institution is focused on caring for the COVID-19 patients in Maastricht. Um, so it, it's very, on the public university side, they're involved in if not exactly the front line, then they're there to support. The normal clinic business is not is not happening. At private clinics, they're pretty much shut down except for doing urgent things um, for, you know, like injections, diabetes, uh, prescription refills, that kind of thing. But my, um, I was joking to somebody on the team today about how they're using their free time to spend it on Facebook blogging about COVID-19. Okay, well, thanks for sort of going over the landscape in Europe, and we're going to hit on it a little bit more, I'm sure, as we talk about the next uh, points in the conversation. I think we sort of divided into three areas. Um, They probably overlap a a fair amount because one area I'm thinking about is, first of all, you have the companies that are exporting to Europe. Uh, Some of these companies are your clients. Um, So we have the company and that's located in a different country. They could be in the United States. They could be in Australia or Canada, you know, or whatever, um, China. Then you have the end user. So we have, uh, Mm -hmm. and by end user, in this case, I mean uh, primarily the doctor, the the clinic that is you know acquiring the 
medical devices to then go on and treat their patient. Uh, you could also say maybe patients are an end user. And then the final one is the distribution channel that these companies are using to you know, move the product and move their message from uh, wherever they are located, let's say the United States, onto uh, the various end users. Let's first talk about communicating to the end user. And so, and, and in this case, I'm talking about the doctors and the clinics, you know, communicating the value proposition, staying top of mind uh, during this COVID area, you know, what should be communicated, what are the various tools and so on. So let's just start talking about that because now, as we discussed in my first podcast, we don't have trade shows and smaller events. And then as you and I just talked about, you know, a lot of these medical specialties, they're closed on reduced hours. And as you just pointed out, if they're in a, um, a major institution, they're on reserve to help treat COVID-19 patients if uh, the front line starts getting worn out or decimated due to infections. So what do you think are some key issues to, to reflect on you know, regarding communicating to the end user? I do think that this is a is a good opportunity to continue to communicate to your customers um, and not hold back. And, and this was actually a subject of an internal discussion we had uh, last week about how do you handle this and, and what do you do in a situation where the world's focus is very much not on business as usual. But you also have a substantial portion of the medical community that that's, has downtime right now. And so is there something that can be done to, you know, what, what can you communicate to them about that will be of interest but not too sort of in their face and exactly opposite of, of, of the situation with the coronavirus? One of the things that we thought about was uh, webinars, and, and, and actually we're switching some of our clients to webinars now to make up for the lack of trade shows. If you pay much attention on LinkedIn and other social media, there's been a huge boom in video conferencing, Zoom, um, webinar, you know, talking about putting webinars together. And, and I think there's a real interest in it because of this downtime and at the end of the day, you can only spend so many hours watching Netflix. And so I think getting some educational content out there is a really good idea. I think it does have to be built around education, um, useful, you know, useful information about is it surgical techniques? Is it um, new clinical studies that are germane to your particular product area? That type of thing. I. I don't think it necessarily has to be focused on COVID-19. I've, I've seen a lot of companies come out with COVID-19 messages in the past couple of weeks, and I think it's good to put that out there, but I don't think it's something that has to be hammered over and over again because I think you need a break from that and to put your mind on something else because if we all spend you know 24-7 thinking about COVID-19, nobody's going to sleep at night. Um, because it can be so overwhelming. So I, I think it, it can be viewed as a, as a welcome distraction from, from what is happening to put information out there, to put content out there that is in the medical, you know, is talking about medicine, but not specifically about the pandemic. So webinars with an education message, 
uh, which in one of the examples you gave was perhaps it could be on surgical technique or something like that. Mm-hmm. But also, no fluff. You know, education, something yes. of value, but avoid the fluff. Avoid the fluff. I've never been a big fan of fluff. It needs to be practical. It needs to be something that is transferable, um, has an impact on how a doctor or their team is practicing. It needs to have that content that really makes a difference. And that's not always the easiest thing to do to come up with, but I think we spend, we pay a lot of attention to what's being published out in the journals. We pay a lot of attention to what's happening with the, with the societies they're talking about, um, what's important to them. We can take our cues also from the European regulatory environment because we, we're going to be transitioning maybe a little bit later than planned to a new regulation. So educating doctors about what those changes mean to them, what data protection means to them, you know, all those kinds of things. How to, how to conduct an investigator-initiated clinical trial. You, know, you can even do that kind of thing. I'm working with one company on a program for that. That's so, cool. Yeah, it's, and, and, it's, and it's good because it, it's teaching doctors to do clinical studies the right way is, is super valuable because it's not, a, it's not something they teach you in medical school just like they don't teach you how to be a business person. And, and running a good clinical study is a, is a very specific technique and we can tell you that a lot of places don't know how to do it. Um, so yeah, there's there's many different ideas that, that you can that you can bring to the table beyond just the usual. Um, yeah, we did a you know here's a surgical video. I think that's actually quite an interesting example how to you know participate in a correctly in a clinical trial because there might be a lot of doctors that would like to do that. Uh, they just haven't really thought about it a lot or may be fearful of you know offering to participate. But if they learned how to do it now they have a new opportunity when this all when this COVID-19 era passes by yeah exactly and and it's it is something that we are always on the lookout the identification of a of a site that that a, a clinic or a practice that can do a good clinical study is is a gold you know is a gold mine and they're not easily found. Um, it's a learned skill. It takes time and practice and commitment. So, and, and a big mistake that companies make is to, you know, pick a clinic because they may know somebody's name. They've spoken at a meeting or something. And it turns out that they really don't know how to do a clinical study. And that can be devastating for a company, especially startups. So this is a focus of ours uh, to make sure that a clinic knows how to do a study if they don't know how to do a study to train them how to do a study and and make sure that all of the 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 right stones are in place so to speak so that they can can be successful in conducting studies for companies to have more options would be a, a great thing so why not talk about how to do a you know how to do an investigator initiated trial or you know, how to do a peer review publication the right way because it's very competitive peer review publishing. So there's lots of different ways to communicate. Sure. By the way, when we're talking about communicating to the end user, I'm making the assumption, and I think you are too, Chris, that 
it's the the manufacturer that you know makes the product and has the value propositions to communicate. It's the manufacturer that is in charge of these communications versus the, versus the distributor. Right, right. Yeah, and it's um, you know that that's an, that brings up an interesting point because especially for smaller companies who are relying on distributors. The company, the manufacturer, often just assumes that the distributor is going to put all of these things in place. And I would say probably, I don't know about your experience, Ted, but I would say in our experience that only happens maybe five out of ten times. Wow. There are very few distributors in Europe who really know how or really have marketing people on staff, clinical programs, um, know how to conduct a clinical study. And especially in the age of GDPR, which is the European equivalent of HIPAA, it's important that you do clinical studies the right way. And so, yeah, it comes down to the manufacturer to, to own this and to work with the distributor and to ensure that the distributor and is, is following through on these commitments. What about other tools like, like um, maybe trying to organize a small video conference with a group of doctors, almost like a roundtable discussion, or the um, maybe optimizing e-newsletters? Yeah, there's um, yeah, webinars, uh, e-blasts. I'm more in favor of doing webinars and something that creates a two-way interaction. With, with an e-blast, with a newsletter, you can actually, you know, you can go in if you have tracking software, and you should have tracking software, go in and see who's opening it up, but you're not going to know who's, who's there. Whereas if you do a webinar or you put something online on your website that people can go back and watch and view later, you're going to have that tracking information. And I think that's another key to communicating in this, this day and age where at you know at trade shows we scan their badges we take their leads we have their details to follow up so you want to be able to get something tangible out of that interaction with a physician so think about ways that create that that two-way exchange of information okay so any other thoughts about communicating to the end user um you know from the manufacturer wherever they're located u.s china you know, Canada, South America, any other thoughts about, you know, how they can communicate uh, during this period of time? Well, I think most importantly, don't be shy. Don't withhold communication. But find something that will appeal to your customers in a beneficial way, you know. Okay. Focusing on you know a te- a, something that's tangible, right? Okay, and now we've got the distribution channel. So, which you sort of commented on a, a couple minutes ago, but the manufacturer, um, who's really in charge of the message and the and the marketing overall, hopefully with the help of somebody like uh, Med Urinet, your firm, but they're working through a distribution channel. So, what? things should be should a manufacturer be considering in terms of working with the distribution channel and and keeping them keeping them engaged 
So we have, a, with, in particular with one of our clients, we have a, a, a program for their distribution channel. And it involves, um, one, it involves an e-newsletter that goes out every month. And originally, it's interesting, originally it was intended for the distributors and not their end customers. But the content, they were so happy with the content, the distributors were then sending it on to their customers to, to read and use. The thing about that newsletter that's great is it's focused on one topic. It's very practical. It usually involves a couple different surgeons who are involved with the technique. This is an instrument company. It's usually focused about how you're going to use that instrument in surgery, tips and techniques, best practices. It's a great value to the doctors. And so I think it's, it's, making, it's offering your distributors something that they can just turn around and repurpose to their end users without having to do a lot of changes to it because what you don't want is the distributor repackaging, watering down, only using parts of the information. You want that complete story. You want your branding pulled through. You want your messaging pulled through. So I think that's really, really critical and that's what we always strive for with our clients is to make certain that what they're getting to give to their distributors carries that full message and full branding and that the distributors own that and use it on an ongoing basis. Um, I think that there are some option opportunities here for webinars, local market webinars, which is something that we're also doing for this particular company. So it'll be in the local language. And as much as we like to think that everybody speaks English, that's not the case. And so it's good to also say to your distributors, talk to them about would it be beneficial if we did something in Spanish or French or German or Italian and, and help them put a webinar together in their local language using, using local customers. So that's, a, that's another option. That's a great idea. Sorry, Blanche just, Blanche just joined the podcast. <laughs> so she's sitting on my shoulder now. <laughs> Blanche the cat. <laughs> yes, Blanche the cat. Um, yeah, and then one of the ideas that you had jotted down is talking about the, the, the free slit lamp shields, for example. And I know a distributor in the UK that has gone and made, made those and is offering them to all their customers free of charge, and they'll help them get them installed. So it's, it's also things like that that can help bridge the safety gap right now. Because if you do have to continue to see patients, and particularly ophthalmologists, COVID-19 can present as um, a viral conjunctivitis. Mm -hmm. And conjunctivitis is extremely infectious, and then COVID-19 is extremely infectious, so there's been a lot of concern about that. So thinking about ways that you can help them protect themselves and their staff while they're still doing their job is also something that's really nice and value added and, and, and the end users will remember. So I would, I guess I'd put that in a category of uh, a helpful offering of some kind. Yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. And it's only going to yeah. create goodwill that will pay off when the market opens up and becomes more active again. Yeah, exactly. And then one thing that, that I, have been a big fan of since since I first got into the medical device industry a few years ago is targeting residents and fellows 
and again, this is something that's really good for distributors to do is to identify up and coming residents and fellows, especially in surgery, help get them trained, help support them, perhaps when the, when the trade meetings come back online, helping them submit an abstract to a meeting for next year so that they can start to get speaking experience and fostering a relationship because those relationships that are built in the early days of somebody's medical career will last a lifetime. And so, and it's also about identifying the next generation of, of surgeons and key opinion leaders. Right. So we have, another thought I had is that we have, both on the manufacturing side and on the distribution side, we have all these people that are now in place. They might be working from home because they're not allowed to go into the office, but they still have channels of communication with their colleagues. Uh, they are having, you know, uh, online meetings and so on, whether it's a, the manufacturer or the distributor. And both you and I know how many times have we heard the excuse for not getting something revised because somebody was traveling, they won't be available for another week, we have to postpone a meeting because somebody's busy. You had all these excuses that interfered with updating sales literature, maybe creating new video tools and so on. With all these people now uh, sitting in place and with the ability to communicate, what do you think the opportunities are for doing some of this stuff, like updating literature and video tools and so on and so forth? Getting, getting all that stuff that we've been ignoring for years on end, probably, to get it updated, I think now is a great time. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I keep telling myself anyway, is um, <laughs> I try and psych myself up to, you know, get through a pile of, of uh you know, reports and things that, that I've been neglecting. So yeah, it's a great time to brush up your literature. Um, look at your website. You know, are there things you can be doing to overhaul your website? Uh, looking at your YouTube channel, because a lot of us have started YouTube channels with great enthusiasm. And then after about six months, we kind of lose interest. And it, it hasn't had anything new put on it probably in, in 12 months. So now, yeah, now is a great time to think about new content, new brochures, and new advertising, and, and new ways to engage engage doctors. And we've, um, some of our clients on the clinical side have decided that now is a good time to do some retrospective data collection because the clinics are not real busy right now. But they have people in there um, because they have to for emergency cases and things. So. Is it a good time to put together a protocol with a, a key opinion leader to get some retrospective data collected and, and do a paper out of it or do a presentation out of it? So there's a lot of different ways that you can, as I've said earlier, that you can interact with, with physicians and, and make use of the time, that the situation that we're in. Yeah, with this downtime on the physician's part, it'd be a great time to get white papers written. Exactly. And or, and or pieces that you're going to plant in the media, you know, uh, that you yeah. want, where you want a doctor's, like an interview, have an interview with a doctor that you'll end up placing in the media later on or a white paper. Yeah, it, it, exactly, exactly. And it's, um, in fact, we're, we're getting ready to start a project, uh, a peer review project right now that, that has been on the back burner for quite a while. And the doctor has decided, okay, yeah, now's, now's the time to get moving on it. 
Yeah, those are great ideas. And with some of your clients, I assume you're probably executing on some of this stuff. Yes, hopefully. Um, that's, yeah, we want to uh, keep the team busy and, and everybody active. And, and so, yeah, it's, uh, those are the things that we're, we're working on and thinking about and talking to our clients about or hopefully potential clients if, if uh, people are interested because it's, it, there is an opportunity now. It's, it's, it's such an unusual period of time. We don't know how long it's going to last. Um, and, and so make the most of it instead of just, yeah, sitting home and watching Netflix, which, as I said, is not something I can do a lot of. Right. <laughs> and I can't keep baking bread because everybody's going to get, you know, <laughs> put on 10 pounds. So. Right, right, right. Okay. Well, this has really been helpful, Chris. I really appreciate the time you've uh, spent with me today sharing this information. You know, so we've, we've looked at the situation in Europe. We've talked about, you know, what manufacturers should be considering that are exporting to Europe in terms of communicating to the end user, uh, working with their distribution channel at this particular time, and the opportunities that are there to um, do a number of things that weren't so easy to do when you have people spread all over the world on airplanes and in hotels. So uh, this has been valuable. Thank you. And I, I just a comment about that. I, a, a good friend of mine is a, a chemi chemical engineer for a local company here in Strasbourg. He's there. He's Canadian. And we're road warriors. We're people who usually spend, you know, 60, 70 percent of our time on the road. And we've been commenting over the past few weeks about how we do not miss it and how work is still getting done. We're still productive business is moving. And so I think that's also a really good message for right right now is maybe it's okay to stay in one place and focus on getting things done instead of being in constant motion. Right. What is it the old saying about being a busy fool? Um, yeah, you know, exactly. Busy exactly. on airplanes, busy in hotels or whatever. Although, you know, the hit on trade shows was tough, trade shows and yes. events, but yeah. you know, we'll we'll recover from that. They'll be back. Yep. They'll be back. It's nice to have a little bit of a breather. Um, I, you know, usually April, May, June, I'm not home at all. Um, so I'm, I'm looking to the forward to the fact that uh, I get to be home a bit more and um, enjoy the spring. And but still spending time talking, talking to doctors, talking to our clients, and 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 finding ways to work together, new ways to work together. Awesome. Okay, so for our listeners, I just want you to know that in the show notes, I will have links to uh, Chris's LinkedIn uh, profile. I'll have a link to MedUranet and links to some other things. In fact, I'll probably go through this call, and um, as I'm listening to it and, and editing it, I will come up with something of a checklist of things that people should be thinking about and considering in terms of managing their business in Europe from afar. Um, so I'll try to put that together and have a download on the Medical Device Success uh, website. So again, Chris, thank you very much. And um, you and I'll be in touch because um, we always are. Exactly. Thank you, Ted. It's been a pleasure. Uh, you bet. Okay, everybody. It's time for the immediate impact idea for today. And for those of you that are new listeners, you will learn that every episode comes with an immediate impact idea. 
and it's something that only takes a few minutes to do and will have impact on your business, positive impact. So today I have two immediate impact ideas. One is if you are a manufacturer and the other is if you are a distributor. So if you are a manufacturer, send a personal email to each of your top distributors. And by personal, I mean it's dear so-and-so, dear Jacques, dear Eduardo. Um, And then you can ask them three things. First, how are they doing? Second, what support could you provide to help them stay top of mind with end users? And third, make an offer to them. Offer to create an e-newsletter that they can distribute to their end users. Okay, that's for the manufacturers. If you are a distributor, you're going to send a personal email to each of your top suppliers, and you're going to ask them, first, how are they doing? Second, if they have any programs or promotions to help you stay top of mind with end users. And in this case, if you've seen a competitor do something that's helping one of your competitive distributors, use, as a, use that as an example. And third, offer to deploy an e-newsletter regarding their products if they would provide you the content and images. So that's it for the immediate impact ideas. Do you have questions or ideas? Contact me via the Medical Device Success website contact page, and there's a link in the show notes. The next episode will be about medtech sales management in the COVID-19 era. To my listeners, thanks for tuning in. If you like the podcast, subscribe and rate it. Now, go win your week. Music